I'm somewhat frustrated because I think that we know a lot about how to solve the climate problem. Um, I think you know the technologies that we need to solve it are largely, perhaps not totally, but largely available. And so um, we have a lot of the pieces available. We're just not deploying them fast enough. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. I've had the great pleasure of including in these podcast conversations over the past three years a significant number of truly outstanding economists who have carried out important work in the realm of environment, energy, and resource economics, and in many cases have been real leaders in the profession. Today is certainly no exception because I'm joined by Jeffrey Heal, the Donald Waite Professor of Social Enterprise at Columbia Business School, where he previously served as Senior Vice Dean, essentially the Chief Academic Officer of the school. More to the point, Jeff Heal is the author of 18 books and some 200 articles, on environmental energy, resource economics, and related topics. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society and the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists, where he previously served as president. Jeff has also held and continues to hold some important advisory and other positions with governmental, multi-governmental, and non-governmental organizations. Welcome, Jeff. Great to be with you, Rob. Always fun to talk with you. So before we talk about your research and your current thinking about environmental and climate change policy, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? Well, I was born in North Wales, in a small town called Bangor on the coast in North Wales. Um, very beautiful place, a uh, very peaceful place. That's where my mother's family were from. Um, but shortly after that, we moved, um, moved to the sort of London suburbs for a while, and then up to the northwest of England, a town called Warrington, uh, which is where I went to secondary school. So secondary school was up there. And then from there, when you graduated, you directly went to Cambridge University? Yeah, that's right. I, I graduated from high school in Warrington, and then I went to Cambridge to Churchill College. Now, now you're only one of several podcast guests who, it seems, started out in physics and then move from physics to eventually wind up in economics. Is that that's true in your case? Yeah, I started off as a physics major uh, at Cambridge. And for the first year, I majored in physics, but then I decided to change. So I eventually completed what I suppose would amount to in US terms, a, a major in economics and a minor in physics. So you, you share that with uh, the late Marty Weitzman, as I'm, I'm sure you know. He was Indeed, a, that's right, yes. I started out in physics myself. I didn't know that. Um, but I didn't study economics until graduate school. I never took a single economics course as an undergraduate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You graduated from Cambridge University. Now, before you continued on there for, I believe, your PhD, you spent some time in the U.S., is that right? Yeah, so as an undergraduate, I was really very very fortunate in my tutors. The uh, Cambridge system is still a tutorial system. So you, mm -hmm. rather than going to big classes, you sort of meet with a tutor one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two. -on -two. And uh, my tutor in my uh, penultimate year there was Joe Stiglitz. Oh, God. 
my teacher in my final year was Peter Diamond, both of whom were visiting for the uh, general audience. Those are both very distinguished economists, both of them Nobel Prize winners. Um, So I became quite close to both of them. And Peter at the time, Peter Diamond, was at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And he arranged for me to spend a year as a kind of visiting graduate student at Berkeley, uh, which I did in the year 66 to 67. And Uh, then from there, after the two years there, then you went back to Cambridge University to study for the PhD in economics. Can you tell us about your dissertation topic and your dissertation committee for that matter? Yeah, sure. Uh, my dissertation was uh, about uh, resource allocation with increasing return to the non-convex production possibility sets. And it was about whether non-price mechanisms could mm-hmm. uh, perform better than price mechanisms in such a context, and about the sort of the type of information that had to be communicated between agents to get an efficient allocation of resources in that context. Um, I was advised by, there wasn't a formal committee at Cambridge in mm-hmm. those days, uh, but my advisors were uh, Jim Murleys and uh-huh. Christopher Bliss. Again, two very able economists. I was really fortunate again there. This is quite a stellar cast of people who, uh, you know, contributed to your education. So uh, you graduate from Cambridge University in 1973. What was your first position out of graduate school? No, I graduated, uh, I got got my PhD in 68 or 69. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. Of course. And and I got a teaching position at Cambridge. First position I got was a slightly unusual position. I was hired to teach linear algebra, mm-hmm. uh, specifically linear algebra. And I ran a course on linear algebra for economists and engineers and people like that for a year or so. Then I got a more general purpose teaching position uh, in the economics. So you were a fellow and a, a lecturer? Are, are those the titles? That you yeah, were I was a fellow of uh, Christ's College. Um, uh-huh. And... Uh, uh, wasn't a university lecturer. I was sort of an adjunct, really, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, for it for a year, a year, a year or so. And then I got a, a regular position. So that was teaching linear algebra. That's right. Yes, believe it or not. Yes. Yeah. That, actually, that was my absolute favorite school when I was first, my absolute favorite uh, course when I was first studying mm-hmm. economics, which was at Cornell for a master's degree before I came to Harvard. I just loved my linear algebra course. Yeah, I've never I, forgotten it. I, it's a fascinating subject. I still like it today. And I, I wrote a textbook on it, actually, when I was at Cambridge. Oh, is that right? Yeah. My, my professor, and I think he was author of our book, but I'm not sure, was named Cyril, last name Cyril, S-C-A-R-L-E. I think he was from... Oh, yes. Yes, I know that book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was my instructor. He was just fantastic. So... Um, then after Cambridge, then you went on to very quickly become a professor of economics. That's a remarkably fast path, if I have that correct. Yeah, I got a chair at Sussex University in 1973, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Tony Atkinson and I got, uh, we were close friends and partners, and um, mm-hmm. we uh, both got chairs at the same the same year in 73, I think it was, in he at Essex, me at Sussex. We were known as the infant professors in the UK in that, those days. <laughs> so you were at Sussex, and then you went on to Essex? Do I have that right? Yeah, I went on to Essex just for a year or so, and then I was offered a position at Columbia, which I'm in now, and I, I came to Columbia. And you've never left? It's a, Well, I guess you've taken off uh, periodically for visiting positions. Yeah, but... yeah I've spent visit, time visiting various places, but I've been based here for 40 years now. joined here in 83, and it's now uh, 2000. Uh, 
So you're obviously a, a happy camper. You voted with your feet. Yeah, I like uh, I like New York and I like Columbia, uh, and it's been a good place for me. We've got a very good group here now. So now that we've gotten up to date, what I'd love to do is to turn to your work in the world of environmental energy and resource economics scholarship. Um, I'm going to start by saying, for the record, that the book, which changed my own scholarly life and became the foundation for my interest in resource and environmental economics, was your path-breaking 1979 book with Partha Dasgupta, Economic Theory and Exhaustible Resources. I've never asked you this, so this is my opportunity. How did your collaboration with Partha and that book come about? Well, it began a long time before the book was published. Mm-hmm. And we were both graduate students at Cambridge in the late 60s. I see. And um, we were both greatly influenced, actually, by James Mead, mm-hmm. uh, who was a senior professor at Cambridge at that point, who had some interest. I mean, he never actually spe- specifically written on environmental issues, but had some real interest in environmental and resource issues uh, and sort of pointed us to look at these. And I think our interest was very strongly piqued uh, by the oil price rise in 1973 and the oil crisis. Um, to look more closely at exhaustible resources. And we wrote, initially we wrote a paper together, which was published in the Review of Economic Studies in, I think, 74, on the optimal depletion of exhaustible resources, sort of updating the Hotelling paper. And then we decided that really this was a big, big area, it needed a lot of work, and there was some merit in, in actually spending a lot of time writing a book which in, integrated a very wide range of perspectives on natural resources, both exhaustible and renewable. So that's where the book Robot grew out of. It started in the early 70s and uh, finally uh, evolved uh, in 79, as you said. The two of you realized when you were working on it how important that was? I mean, it was really path-breaking uh, in the scholarly world, of in, quantitative scholarly world of environmental resource, energy, economics. Well, I couldn't speak for Partha, but I don't think I did, no. No, I think we really we had fun writing it. Um, mm-hmm. We both really enjoyed it, and we enjoyed collaborating. And I think it's something we just felt sort of intellectually compelled to write because mm-hmm. uh, we felt the time was right, and we felt that um, you know we could make a contribution there, um, particularly acting together. But I don't think we had any sense that of the impact it would have, quite frankly, because it, as you said, it's had quite a big impact. I and mean, I find students still reading it today, which is quite remarkable. I suspect that around the world, when you're delivering lectures, whether it's in uh, Singapore or in Brussels, that frequently someone probably comes up to you after your lecture with a copy of that book (laughs) and asks you to autograph it. Yep, that has happened. Yes. You may not remember it, but I I did that. It was actually inside my office before you made a seminar presentation one time. Yes, and I value it on my shelf. I'm not sure if I've ever gotten Partha to do it because I typically have not seen Partha. uh, I guess I did see him at Harvard when he was visiting for a while. I'm not sure if I have his autograph in there as well. But as you mentioned before, it's it's 40 years, it's four decades or more that you've been working in this area. You've seen some very significant changes, I assume, in the scholarly world of resource and environmental economics. Um, are there particular changes in the scholarly world, not the policy world, that stand out to you? Um, 
Yes, a lot, really. Uh, I mean, the, the change, the field has been transformed, hasn't it? Um, the, uh, I mean, in the last decade or so, it's mm -hmm. been transformed into a much more empirical field than it was uh, before that. Yes. So, you know, sort of the, what they call the credibility revolution in economics has taken hold in uh, environmental and resource economics, too. Mm -hmm. So we've got a vast number of papers uh, using interesting novel data sets to look at uh, climate impacts or regulatory impacts. Um, and I think they've increased our understanding of the impact of environmental issues and environmental policies very considerably. Um, I also think that at a more abstract and conceptual level, it's become much more integrated into the whole of economics. Uh, you know, when it mm -hmm. started, I think the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists was founded in the 70s, if I remember rightly. That's right. And it was a sort of a, an outlying field without an awful lot of overlap with the rest of economics. Mm -hmm. And I think it's become a much more mainstream part of economics right. over the, the, the ensuing decades. And, and it, you know, it's, it's, it, there's been a cross-fertilization in both directions. I think we've taken ideas from economics and we've given ideas to economics. I, I think it's fair to say that back then, the period you were describing when environmental resource economics was first emerging, it wasn't so much from economics departments, but from the land-grant institutions, these departments of agricultural and resource economics in the U.S. That's where a lot of the action was before mainstream economics departments even hired in this area. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So Berkeley and the University of Maryland, so on, yes, Wisconsin. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it was a long time before mainstream economics departments started hiring in this area, and some of them still don't. Yes, you're, you're, you're right on both counts there. So let's turn to the policy world a bit. But first, before I do that, um, I do want to ask you one other thing about your research and your writing. And I know this might be like asking you to identify your favorite child, and perhaps I've prejudiced it by my comments about your 1979 book, but is there a particular research publication, let's say other than that book, that you're really most proud of? Oh, boy. Um, that's not a question I've really focused on very much. Um, you know, I sometimes go back and look at my early publications, and I sort of, they get a blank stare from me. I, 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 I actually say, did I write this? Did I, did really I do write that? This? Yes, exactly. Um, not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just that I don't feel a right. personal connection with things I yeah. wrote back in the 70s very much these days. Sure. Um, you probably have the same feeling, though. You oh, yeah, the 70s, absolutely. But for the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a, a slightly obscure paper that I wrote uh, within a volume that I believe was edited by Bob Pindyke. Um mm -hmm a very early volume on climate change in economics. And I wrote a paper about, uh, I forget what it was called exactly, but it was uh, about how economists should go about modeling climate change. Mm -hmm. And it didn't get into a lot of specifics, but it raised sort of conceptual issues about what was unique and what was difficult about climate change from an economic perspective. And I think in retrospect, actually, it was a very prescient article um, because it put its finger on a lot, put my finger on a lot of things that have subsubsequently turned out to be important. How you model uncertainty, how you model discount rates, mm -hmm. whether you use a partial or general equilibrium framework, a whole bunch of issues of that sort. That's um, interesting. And you said you you believe it was edited by Bob Pindyke. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When we're when we finish chatting, I will uh, take a look at your CV, which I have, and see if and search for the word Pindyke in order to look up that article and then get hold of that article so I can read it myself. And I, I imagine many of our listeners will, in fact, want to do this, the same thing. 
So with this, I, I want to turn more to the policy world and actually start by what is, in a sense, really the interface between research scholarship and the policy world, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Now, you served as a coordinating lead author of the chapter on adaptation, I believe, in working group two of the fifth assessment report. Everyone in our audience around the world for this podcast knows about the IPCC, but they may not know about the distinctions between coordinating lead authors, lead authors, contributors, reviewers. There are a whole set of different designations. Can you give us some insight into that? Sure. Happy to do so. Um, So for each chapter, there's a, a writing team. The team could be typically somewhere between 10 and 20 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of most of the members of the team are lead authors. So they're people who are responsible for writing a piece of the chapter. Mm-hmm. The coordinating lead authors, and typically there's two of them for each chapter, um, are uh, responsible for putting all of the pieces together and editing the entire thing and sort mm-hmm. of div- divvying out the space between the various aspects of the problem. So the coordinating lead authors have to... Um, have to essentially decide what the agenda for the chapter will be in, in consultation with the lead authors and then decide who will write which part of the chapter. And then when they're drafted, you know, you have to sort of, you have to try to put them into, meld them into one reasonably coherent piece. Mm-hmm. Make certain that the arguments get passed off from one section to the next um, and make them into a readable overall whole. Now, I actually had the experience uh, several times of being a lead author and then in AR5, actually in working group three, the mitigation uh, report of being a coordinating lead author. And in my own case, there were parts that I found interesting, even enjoyable. And there were some aspects I found painful. Um, Can you say anything about a high point and a low point of your service as a CLA, a coordinating lead author? Well, the low point is that there's there's a lot of work, very time-consuming. <laughs> I spend an awful lot of time um, reading through the sections and then maybe in some cases reading the material on which the sections were based to see exactly what they were trying to say. And that was it took a lot of time. And you know, as academics, we're already we're always very busy anyway, you know, and so you don't get any teaching relief or anything like that for being a, an IPCC CLA. So um, you have to fit this time into everything else you're doing. Now, that, I think, was difficult. Um, I think what was fun was was really um, cooperating with a group of people, many of whom I didn't really know very well beforehand, and who brought very different perspectives to the issue of adaptation. Um, so that was uh, intellectually a, a voyage of discovery for me. Because your, your writing team was no doubt international from oh, quite totally. a few different continents. Totally, yeah. yes, yes. I think yeah. my writing That's team it. came from every continent. Right. That's a fundamental tenant of the IPCC is that yeah. kind of, is geographic diversity. So uh, with that, I want to turn um, to current times, in particular in regard to climate change policy. What are some of your greatest concerns today, Jeff? I'm somewhat frustrated because I think that we know a lot about how to solve the climate problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know the technologies that we need to solve it are largely perhaps not totally, but largely available. I mean, I think that, you know, as you obviously know, wind and solar power are uh, widely available and they're very inexpensive. 
Um, and we have uh, increasingly the capacity to store energy uh, through batteries or maybe through developing, making hydrogen. Um, so I think we know how to move to an electric grid, which is powered entirely uh, without fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can do this, and I think we can do this relatively cheaply because uh, fossil fuels, as I said, are more expensive than wind and solar, even allowing for the need to build out the grid and, and, and invest in storage. I think we also know how to decarbonize light transportation. I know electric vehicles are doing very well these days. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, we have a lot of the pieces available. We're just not deploying them fast enough to reach the targets that we think we need to reach. And so I find that frustrating. Um, you know, we're sort of we're very close to being able to achieve the goal, but we're not actually doing what we need to do to get there. And is that because of not understanding what kind of policies need to be developed, or is it just is it because it's the politics block the policies being enacted or implemented? It's the politics. The it's politics. The politics. Yeah, absolutely. It's the you know the enormous influence of the fossil fuel industry. Um, mm-hmm. And the, uh, uh, the the sense of amongst at least some conservatives that this is um, a plot to increase the powers of the state, mm-hmm. and of course the Ukraine war has, has really been a major problem too because it's caused uh, Europeans to move away from natural gas and in some cases back to coal, which is a terrible piece of backsliding. Um, I mean, it's understandable under the circumstances, but it's very regrettable from a climate perspective. There's a variety of things, but I think that you know, the Ukraine war, I, I hope, is a mm-hmm. temporary phenomenon, whereas the um, power of the fossil fuel industry and the, uh, the sort of conservative misapprehensions about what climate change is all about, I think, are, are more real and more enduring. So some observers have said, and from what you just said, I think you would agree with this, some observers have said that in the short term, the Ukraine war will retard uh diffusion of higher levels of renewables, but in the long term, it will increase it because of lessons learned about energy security, particularly in Europe. Do you go along with that? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I think that's exactly the right way to put it. I mean, Britain, for example, has moved away from uh, natural gas to some degree, and everybody's moving away from natural gas Mm -hmm. to the degree that they can um, in Europe. Uh, deploying wind and solar rapidly. A couple of countries are deploying nuclear as rapidly as is possible. Well, that's not an easy thing to deploy quickly. Now, in the United States, at least, there's much greater attention. I'm struck by this over the last few years to what is referred to as environmental justice or just transition uh, in terms of the economics, essentially the distributional implications of climate change and of climate change uh, policies. What's your reaction to that increased attention? I think it's very appropriate. I think that uh, it's a fact that climate change is having its greatest impact on people who are uh, poor, um, both within the country and across countries. Um, And so it's clear that, for example, what happened uh, last year and what's beginning to happen this year is that people in uh, low-income areas of India and Pakistan are suffering quite seriously from massive heat waves. Uh, and uh, other consequences of climate change. We saw the extraordinary flooding, for example, in Pakistan uh, last year, I guess it was, uh, with something like estimates suggesting that one third of all the buildings in Pakistan were affected Mm -hmm. by the floods and huge numbers of people displaced. You've got to remember that these are very, very poor people with very little in the way of resources to fall back on. 
These are not people who can turn to an insurance company and file an insurance claim to get their, their house replaced. Right. Um, it's a part of the world where you just don't have insurance. So it's very difficult for us to put ourselves in that position, I think. Um, but these are the people on whom the burden of climate change is falling primarily. Uh, and uh, people who don't have air conditioning, for example, are being exposed to temperatures of you know, 95, 100, 105 degrees and humidity, high humidity as well. Very painful combination. Now, th- that leads me to think about really a final question for you, which is that something that's been observed in the United States and in Europe, and certainly in the United Kingdom over the last two to three years have been increased youth movements of climate activism, most prominently, of course, Greta Thunberg, but it's been much broader than her and any single coalition. What's your reaction to those? Are, those, are these youth movements of climate activism playing a constructive role? Are they neutral and not having an effect? Or is it in some way actually counterproductive? I think they're having a productive role, personally. I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's some disagreement, and it may be a little bit early to tell. Um, but I think that uh, essentially I'd say that anything that draws attention to the seriousness of the problem is is good. And uh, these youth movements are causing parents to think more seriously about the issues. And parents vote uh, and make donations and so on. I mean, I've heard of several cases of, for example, uh, Know, senior executives in big corporations mm-hmm. who've had big rows with their children over issues of climate change and reaction to climate change and say they've been forced to rethink their positions because of their children on this. I mean, children have a, a sort of, you know, what's the phrase? I mean, they look through a dark, I mean, we look through a glass darkly, but when you're a child, you don't, you don't, the, the glass is clear. Yes. Um, to paraphrase rather inelegantly, something from the Bible. Um I think children do have a clear perspective on these things, unfiltered by political interests and so on. And they also take a long-term view. Um, and I think that in the UK, in addition to the, the climate movement, you've got something called Extinction Rebellion, yes. which is picking up the issue of biodiversity, which I think is you know, in many ways as important and as tragic as climate change. Yeah, indeed. We haven't had a chance to talk about it, but so much of your work, um, in particular the work that I'm familiar of of yours with NGOs has been focused on conservation and biodiversity. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a hugely important topic. Um, and uh, it's one that economists need to work on more. We don't really have a hugely good model mm-hmm. of, of biodiversity and what it is and how it works in economics yet. I think we have, we know enough to know that it's important, but we don't really have enough to, to really... Uh, I I have difficulty, for example, teaching a really coherent course on economics Mm -hmm. and biodiversity. Right. Now, you know, you're mentioning about uh, young people and looking through a clear glass or not. That leads me to ask you whether you think with young people this is a cohort effect or an age effect. So as this current generation of youth activists, as they get older, Will they, when instead of demonstrating on the outside, will they be the negotiators on the inside and still be activists? Or is it an age effect? And many people, of course, that glass gets darker as they get yeah. older. They become more conservative. What? Yeah. what do you, I know this is asking you to predict the future, but <laughs> what do you what do you think? It's a tough question. I mean, I was part of the. I saw. So I was a grad student in nineteen sixty eight, when there was a sort of a sort of something of a revolution among students 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. you know, I was I was a student at Berkeley, for example, when uh, Reagan was first elected governor at the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement. And then back in Europe, it was 1968 was the year of a student revolution in France and in Germany. And I know a lot of the people who were involved in that. Um, and as they've aged, their perspectives have changed. But they're still uh, liberals, and they're still on the left politically. But they're not, nothing like as radical as they were when they were in their teens or early twenties. So my guess is that there will be some moderation as people age, but they will remain devoted to these issues and remain concerned about these issues, and they'll take that concern with them uh, as they move up in the hierarchy. So I think that note of optimism is a good place to draw our conversation to a close. Thank you very much, Jeff, for having taken time to join us today. Well, thanks for your interest, Rob. Our guest today has been Jeffrey Heal, the Donald Waite Professor of Social Enterprise at Columbia Business School. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.